Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. All Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 213 for July 24th, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got a lot of great stuff for you again this episode. We're going to be interviewing people involved with the show's Love Incorporated, What to Do When You Hate All Your Friends. We got The Johnny. We've also got uh, the next up in the Broadway abridged uh, Broadway Bullet radio series. This time it's Spring Awakening. And we're going to hear from Ken Davenport in his uh, segment, The Producer's Perspective. So hold on tight and uh, let's get rolling with the first interview. On the boards. All right. A new musical, Love Incorporated, is opening at the Midtown International Theater Festival, the new commercial division. And I imagine we'll find out a little bit more of what that means here and uh the musical is written book music and lyrics by author mark castle who is here with us today and is being musical directed by philip kirchman who is also joining us for an interview and performance how you guys doing good want want to introduce yourselves uh so people can connect the name with your voice i'm philip (laughs) (laughs) musical directors don't talk much they just play the piano so he's a little uncomfortable that's that's why we choose that profession (laughs) (laughs) i'm mark castle i wrote the book music and lyrics for love incorporated well so first first thing off the bat kind of start with the base things what what is love incorporated about what's Love Incorporated is a, is a show about a woman who is great at business and not so great at her social life and decides to create a business to catch the man of her dreams. All right. So uh, it's a four-character show um, with uh, just a really charming, uh, lighthearted uh, musical comedy. So what kind of prompted you? It was what, I guess what kind of developed this idea of a concept for you? Actually, <laughs> uh, did I've you been go internet dating? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Actually, that, no. That had nothing to do with it. I, I, I don't know where the the basic idea. The idea to do the show somehow came out of uh, uh, people keep. I had written a, a much larger show, and people said, "Oh, that's great. Do you have anything small?" So uh, after a while, I thought, "Oh, I'm going to sit down and write something small." So I came up with the idea of, of doing a four-character musical, and uh, and this I, I was working on a different idea, and I just realized that it wasn't feasible with four people, and I uh, I was at a party on 96th Street, and I walked home to 43rd, and and on the way came up with the entire idea, just sort of developed in my head on the walk home. So it was like, wow, it just was there, and I I, I wrote it and couple of months the the book to it and uh, 
and then it was a long process of uh, working on the the score. So, and here it is. It's it, uh, it's had a number of developmental readings over the years, and uh, started at ASCAP and worked at Innovative Theater in New York and. Uh, done at the Snapple Center a couple of years ago, and uh, this is our actually first production. It's very the exciting. Snapple Center. Don't the, you love how all theaters uh, no. now are named after corporations? But you know, they gave us free <laughs> Snapples for, for I mean, you know, so the audience got Snapple. You know, <laughs> it's hysterical. You know, I, I realize that logically it's really kind of the same thing as Rockefeller Center. You know, it's... <laughs> You know that was just a, that was Rockefeller is the big business then, but the, you know something about Rockefeller Center I think rings classier than it's know, just not the American same. Airlines Theater, Snapple, Staples Center. I don't know. Those. Well, there is a Mr. Rockefeller there. I don't think there's a Mr. Right. Snapple. I know. It's just, I, I, I personally will never get over theaters being named after products. I, don't know. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> Um, now, Philip, is this something you've been involved with for a while, or did you come in for this production? No, actually, I had I'd started doing some music direction up at AMDA at the American Musical Theater Dramatic Academy, and started working with the director of the show, Igor Golden, and um, he sort of brought me on board. Um, I actually did the arrangements for the show, and it was a little terrifying at first because it's my my first venture into arranging a whole show, and um, so we met with Mark what middle of June. And, um, I think a little bit earlier than that. Yeah. And um, I started writing, and I guess he liked what I did. <laughs> hey, what is <laughs> the process with, a, with you know, as a composer to work with another arranger? Is there... I, how often do you get ideas that you didn't expect? How often is it that you're trying to, you know, carry across a very specific idea you have... Well, I, I don't have a, a large musical background, so I mean, I, I, my stuff was fairly rudimentary, and uh, you know, I, I, I worked through lead sheets, and, and uh, I had very definite ideas of what I heard, um, and that got filtered through Philip, and and uh, came up with, you know, I mean, we had arrangements earlier that we we used that came through the demo, and um, but we wanted it all of the piece. Um, I I work primarily as a, a book writer, a lyricist. This is actually the first show that I did the music alone, um, uh, and it was quite a daunting task. <laughs> I don't know if I will ever do that again. But I I love I hear music in my head, and I you know I've always wanted to do it, and and uh, it just kind of fell into my lap, and I thought why not? And it's it's actually amazingly impressive because he got a hold of a keyboard and taught himself the notes and wrote the melodies out and, and the chord progressions and stuff like that for the lead sheets and it's 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 very impressive. It was it was nuts. I mean because there's actually a fugue in the show and I thought, oh am I gonna do this? And I, I once I did that I knew I could I could I could get through it. And and essentially uh, the collaborator that I usually work with on shows, it was a, a brilliant composer named uh, Scott Zesh, left his keyboard because he goes from New York to to Texas and I thought, all right, I have this keyboard, and, and I hooked it up to my computer, and I learned the software, and I, I literally wrote the entire score in eight months. And when you realize that for somebody like Philip to sit down and write write down a song, it would take maybe <clears throat> a day, you know, because you just play it into the software. For me, it was like two weeks to do a very rudimentary. So it was... It was scary, but I mean, what was amazing that is that I did it, and it's um, 
the thing I think I'm most proud of in, in terms of my, you know, my, uh, what I've done as a writer, I mean, just because it was so out of my element, you know, I'm, I'm so used to doing all the other stuff, but, uh, you know, being able to sit down and saying, oh, wow, this is mine, you know, and I, and, you know, I'm not one to say, but I, I think it sounds pretty good, so I'm, uh, I'm very impressed that I was able to do it. Well, I understand you're going to sing a song here for us now yes. as well, and, uh, and Philip, you're going to play, you know, a company here. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about the song for you? This, strangely enough, this is actually the first song I wrote for the show, and uh, I, I had heard it in my head, and uh, I had talked to um, composers at the time, and uh, I had worked with somebody, and I thought, you know, it sounded interesting, and, and I had a dummy melody in my head, and this was it, and I said, you know, this is, I, I think this works really well. It's uh, a song called Coasting, and it's sung by uh, Casey, the, the lead character, in uh, who uh, is the the person that our lead woman is chasing after, and he, his wife has left him, and he's drunk at a bar, trying to sort of say, "No, it's not a problem. I, you know, I've, uh, I can deal with this. It's great. Everything's great. You know." And this is the song. All right, I'll uh... Keeping it cool, taking it light. Hey, it's paradise found for a man on his own So I'm venturing forth with my eyelids shut tight Heading for regions unknown Coasting, coasting, staying sweetly out of touch I am coasting through the days Never feeling very much Coasting, coasting, just as calm as I can be I will coast along till you come back to me I'm feeling swell, how can I lose when it's heaven on earth For a man on the make, simply lubricate well with a bottle of booze when the old heart starts to ache Coasting, coasting, gliding high among the kites I am coasting through the days I am coasting through the nights Coasting, coasting, floating high and floating free I just coast along till you come back to me. One of these days I will feel again, so the experts say. I'll take my turn at the wheel again, but until that day, I'll be coasting, coasting, floating high and floating free. I just coast along till you come back to me. I know one day I will feel again, though I don't know how. I know one day I'll feel Stride. 
I am coasting through my life, feeling nothing much inside. Coasting, coasting far too late to turn the tide. So I tell myself, <laughs> relax and just enjoy the All right, very nice. It's nice to get a chance to hear, you know, the composers perform their own works. Well, I, I, I wasn't planning on it. I know, I, I, you know but I, equity is protecting yeah, the right. actors from getting exposed to further people and possibly getting further in their careers. So as, as long as equity wants to protect protect that, I guess. We <laughs> and I will tell you, it, it is, it, I'm sure will be sung much better in the show. Than you sang great. No, seriously, you sang great. I think thank sometimes, you. Thank you. I think sometimes there's some performers out there that should sometimes listen to I mean I'm not going to say you have like an operatic wow Pavarotti but but it's nice hearing an honesty and and um, and musical theater is often about the acting and the emotion as much as it is about the singing and the voice and I do think I won't name names but I think there are some famous performers out there who forget that sometimes so that's true but <laughs> I won't name them but uh, I I have sung that song before I've done it I, I actually sang it at a benefit at uh, St. Malachy's a couple of years ago and uh, one or two other places, so it's not like I've never done it before. So I'm curious a little bit, what is the this special new division of the Midtown International Theatre Festival, the commercial division? From what I understand, it's... The, uh, they picked three shows for this division this year, um, and my understanding is that it's, it's for shows that they foresee maybe having future life after the festival. Yeah, it's a, it's a new concept that mm -hmm. they've decided. They, they, the things that they felt had commercial appeal and, and uh, possibilities. And the nice thing about it is that we are in uh, the TBG Theater, um, which is a wonderful space. And it's not quite in the way that many of these festivals work where, you know, you're rushed in and rushed out because there are only three uh, shows that use the one theater that uh, there's a lot more breathing space and uh, uh, you're given a little more attention and uh, so it's it's very nice in that sense I mean you know that, that we really have the access to a great space and and uh, aren't rushed in and out and and really can uh, use the space in the way that one should <laughs> when one is not in a festival. All right, now the show is running from August 1st to August 10th, is that right? That's right, and uh, you can go to the website lovingmusical.com, um, and it will give you there are different dates. Uh, we, I think, I, I couldn't tell you exactly, yeah, no, but the, there are the, the, festival schedules. It's, a, it's an odd festival schedule, but so. uh, we, we do have nine performances over ten days uh, running from uh, August 1st to August 10th, and we have, uh, you know, uh, Philip had mentioned Igor Golden, who is the director, who is uh, just a phenomenal director. I mean, and I'm I'm pretty hard on directors because I've directed myself. And, oh, he's and awesome. He's just an amazing director, and and we have gathered a cast that is 
stupendous. I mean, you know, I mean, we're, we're just essentially starting rehearsals, but I mean, finding them and, and they were so, all four of them are so perfect for these roles, and I, I'm just overjoyed by by what's... Yeah, and after the first musical rehearsal on Monday, they, it's just, it's clear that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a really tight, well-put-together process. All right. Well, I'm so glad you could join us. Philip Kirchman, Mark Castle, thank you so much. And again, people can check out loveincmusical.com for more information. And I wish you the best of luck in this endeavor. Thank you. Thank you. The Call Board. Well, congratulations to all the nominees of the New York Innovative Theater Awards. The nominees for Outstanding Production of a Musical include Conjure Woman, Honor, The People vs. Mona, The Rock A, Triumph of Love, and Yank, a new musical. And hey, we had interviews with Mona, Triumph, and Yank. Nominees for Best Play are Burn, Crave Hold, The James Wilde Project, The Caucasian Chalk Circle, Cherry Docks, Fight Girl Battle World, No End of Blame, and The Night is Nosferatu. Yeah, we got Chalk Circle in there as well. Also, congrats to the nominees who we've interviewed for their shows. Michael DeJoya, nominated for Best Lead Actor for Elizabeth Rex. And Best Actress nominees, Abby Baum for Triumph of Love and Stephanie Barton-Farkish for Elizabeth Rex. The awards will be handed out on September 22nd. For a full list of nominees, visit www.nyitawards.com. Next up, a new musical entitled Robin and the Seven Hoods is aiming for a Broadway opening in spring 2010. According to its producers, the new musical will feature a book by Peter Ackerman and a score by Sami Khan and James Van Heusen. Tony nominee Casey Nicola will direct and choreograph the production. A rethinking of the 1964 Warner Brothers film of the same name, Robin and the Seven Hoods, will, press note state, shine a Broadway light on that sexy era in pop culture that ushered in the 60s and whose hold remains firm on the American psyche, where James Bond reigned supreme, martinis flowed freely, and Sinatra and Martin ruled the night. Also, a little bit further in the future, but uh, tickets are going on sale quickly, Cherry Herman's Broadway concerts featuring the songs of the Tony Award-winning composer and lyricist will be presented at the Kennedy Center in March 2009. Featuring the National Symphony Orchestra, the March 12th through 14th, 2009 concerts will play the Kennedy Center's Concert Hall. Donald Pippen will conduct the orchestra. Soloists will be announced at a later date. Tickets, price $20 to $85, will go on sale to Kennedy Center members August 1st and to the general public August 11th. For more information, visit www.kennedy-center.org. Also, Ben Elton's Olivier Award-winning comedy, Popcorn, based on his acclaimed novel of the same name, will arrive on Broadway in fall 2008, according to a casting notice. Lawrence Boswell will direct the production at a Broadway theater to be announced. Producer is Mark Rosano for Who Are Us Productions. Casting directors are looking to fill the roles of Carl, Velvet, Farrah, Scout, Brooke, Kristen, and Bill. The role of Wayne Hudson has been cast. Elton's novel, Popcorn, was published in 1996. The novel, according to press notes, is described as such. Quote, Bruce shoots movies. Wayne and Scout shoot to kill. In a single night, they find out the hard way what's real and what's not, who's the hero and the villain. A nation watches in awe as Bruce and Wayne resolve the serious questions. Does art imitate life? And does Bruce use erection cream? Then... Reminded everybody here in New York City, the 106.7 Light FM Presents Broadway and Bryant Park 2008 series continues. This free lunchtime series takes place over six consecutive Thursdays. It started July 10th, and it goes every Thursday through August 14th. The free annual event will be hosted by WLTW's on-air personalities and feature live performances from the hottest on- and off-Broadway shows. Log on to www.1067lightfm.com for the performance listings, schedule updates, and the chance to win free Broadway tickets. 
also. And I'm reminding everybody, if you or someone you know is looking to do some recording here in New York City, uh, I can handle it. I got a great, comfortable studio here in Times Square, some affordable rates. I handle all sorts of production, not just musical theater, but also pop, R&B, and rock production as well, and can help with arrangements and finding the right musicians. If you'd like to schedule a free consultation, give me a buzz at 646-345-3433. And the call board is being sponsored by Roy Aria Studios, located at 43rd and 8th, hey, in the same building as us, in the heart of the theater district. They've got tons of great rehearsal spaces, performance venues at a great price, and they've got a staff who has been involved in all aspects of production and truly knows how to help out however you might need it. The spaces are equity approved, and they're easily accessible by Port Authority, Penn Station, and all subways. Feel free to give them a call at 212-957-8358 or send an email to bookings at Roy Arias Studios for any inquiry or to view the spaces. On the boards. Great thing about this program, I find myself faced with a problem and somehow the solution seems to magically appear. And that's what I got with what to do when you hate all your friends. Nah, I don't hate all my friends, but (laughs) we got a show entitled that, that uh, is written by playwright Larry Konofsky and is directed by Jacob Kruger. Did I get both those names right? That is correct. Yep. All right. Not even any, like, you know, prep. No, good karma so far. <laughs> and uh, we're here to talk about the Four Chairs production of What to Do When You Hate All Your Friends. Uh, why don't you introduce yourselves really quick so people can connect your uh, voice with what you Hi, do. I'm Larry Konofsky. I'm the playwright. And I'm Jacob Kruger, and I'm the director. All right. So what do you do when you hate all your friends? This is the question that the play poses. Um, I think by the end of the play, you still won't have an answer, but you'll know the process of hating all your friends from beginning till the end. Yeah, for me, the play is more like a big question. Um, What if there was a way where you knew your friends wouldn't disappoint you? And uh, Larry just has a tremendous amount of fun playing around with that idea. I'll elaborate, because uh, my friends never disappoint me. Okay, so, yeah. You have a charmed, enlightened existence. Some of us, less so, and uh, the main character in our play, um, at the very top of the play, hates all his friends. And he's at the process of divorcing all his friends. He's basically dumped all of his friends. And then he meets a woman who he kind of loves almost instantly, who is at the center of The Friends, which is um, a secret society of friends. They have rules. They have a ranking system. There's talk of a newsletter. There's lots of secret signs and points that you can gain or lose based on your behavior to your other friends. And the only way these people can be together, this man and this woman, according to this woman, is if the man joins The Friends. And so a man who hates all his friends is left with the dilemma of how to be with a woman who not only needs her to be his friend, but to be in the cult of friendship. Okay, so where, where did the idea come from to do this? Um, I think when I was in college, I wanted to... Because I do this to my friends. Yeah. I point systems. I keep so hearing that. I think that. I should, like, sue. I've never, for the record... <laughs> yeah. I've never done that to anybody, but people keep telling me that they do that all the time, so I must... I mean, okay. Uh, but when I was in college, I think, I wanted to dump all my friends. And then I realized if I dumped all my friends, then I'd just meet new friends who 
would be basically the same friends, just in different bodies. And so the point of dealing with people over time is to kind of process who they are and, and accept who they are. Um, and I think that's really what the play is about. It's ex accepting yourself and accepting how others are and learning how to click with them. Now, Jacob, when did you get involved as a director? Was it pretty early on in the inception? Or? Well, Larry's been working on this play for about 15 years. So, no, not very early in the inception of the idea. Larry and I um, met actually at a uh, writing group, um, and he brought a play called A Guy Adrift in the Universe, which was our first production together, which I fell in love with. And um, so we ended up creating Four Chairs Theater together. And uh, when Larry showed me this play, I just knew this was the next one that I, I had to direct. Um, because the thing that I love about Larry's plays is they make me laugh really, really hard. But there are also these moments that are truly emotional and beautiful and profound. And uh, finding something where you can play with both sides of the equation in that way is, is very rare and very fun. Now, I'm going to ask a stickler here. Um, a lot of people have been talking about how they feel that there's no genre of theater that has been hurt as much by television as the comedy. Um, I, I would argue that it's hard to come up with a concept, you know, that can hold, you know, make people laugh for an hour straight, stand off unique enough so that it doesn't feel like it. Oh, it's just another. How, working as a director, as a writer, how do you, how do you feel about that uh, kind of the influence I, of television? I think that's an especially good question because there's supposedly this television show about friends <laughs> I, that I've heard of that this play predates, but I think there's this expectation of like, oh, it's a show about friends. They're going to sit on the same couch and have coffee together and then 20 second intervals there'll be a laugh track it's, and a play of course is very different and this play is very different from that show and the full title of the play is What to Do When You Hate All Your Friends an anti-social comedy and it's kind of a dark comedy I mean it's not just supposed to make you forget yourself and feel good it's supposed to make you laugh until it hurts it kind of hurts a little bit to remind yourself that sometimes it takes a lot of work to connect with people. So um, I think there's actually shows on TV that do that now. Like when I watch The Office, I kind of cringe a little bit at how icky the relationships are. And I think it's that kind of comedy. Well, but that's not quite so much what I'm asking no. as, uh, as like, for instance, you know, in decades past, Neil Simon was mm -hmm. the undisputed, you know, like king of playwrights. Sure. And comedies proliferated all over. There was always... But it's rare now. You know how many yeah. dramas I interview? I mean, it's... I, I personally think, and I've read that, that television, that the sitcom, not Friends or anything, yeah, yeah. has really, you know, hurt the theatrical presentation of a comedy for both audience expectations and, and different things. And I was just kind of wondering both of your takes on that phenomena. Well, I think we'd, we'd see a phenomena happening in the theater where... Young playwrights are often imitating sitcoms, and I think this is a really bad thing for theater um, because I think theater and sitcoms are completely different animals. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a as a director, well, first off, I'm lucky that Larry does not do that, <laughs> so that's that's nice. But as a director, I think for me, it's always about not not looking for the joke 
but looking for the character and uh, working with great actors who can be true to a character and trusting that the material, if the material is actually funny, which I think this play is actually genuinely funny, that you don't have to set up the joke and you certainly don't need a laugh track. Mm -hmm. If it's genuinely funny and if the characters are committed, if the actors are committed to their character, people are going to laugh. And so I don't think about, when I'm directing, I don't think about sitcoms at all. I think about what is, what is a play about? Um, what, what does it mean? Why are, why are we telling this story? And I feel like if you're true to that, it kind of guides you through the rest of it. Yeah, no, and that makes sense. I do think a lot of writers are treating their plays almost as like just an audition pad to get an agent to get a sitcom gig. And a lot of times you go to the shows and they don't feel like anything more than a sitcom, which if you're going to pay 20 bucks to 75 bucks or whatever and go out and have an evening at the theater, I don't know. I want an experience that's unique yeah. and not just a, you know, a second-rate average sitcom that I could have stayed home and yeah. watched that Because usually it's better at home. Yeah, I don't want you to watch it. <laughs> yeah, it, it took me a really long time as a playwright to come to terms with the fact that I write comedies. Um, because of the negative associations therein. I mean, what I'm trying to do is reach people on a fairly deep level. And for the longest time, I didn't want to associate with the term comedy because it seemed less serious in that way. But I think that there's a serious purpose to the kind of comedy that we're trying to present at Four Shares and with this play. Yeah, it's funny, actually, because I came from L.A. Um, I'm the only person ever to leave L.A. in order to go into theater. Uh, and that's one of the things, uh, I call it my reverse commute. Um, and it was great for me, uh, and it was great for me being able to create a company with Larry because both of us, we're not looking to get into film. We're looking, and we're certainly not looking to get into television, we're looking to do theater and to do plays that are inherently theatrical, um, that you couldn't do on television. Um, and uh, I think that's kind of what this play is for me. It's, it's what if, what if, uh, if Friends, <laughs> the famous sitcom that we all know about, was so funny that you couldn't, you couldn't stop laughing. Um, what if it wasn't set up, payoff, set up, payoff, set up, payoff, but instead was us a, a play that really gets to the heart of like, what is it with intimacy? Why is it so hard sometimes? Why can't Ross just take a break? <laughs> <laughs> Ross really needs a break, supposedly. I've never seen the show. But, but Jacob brought an interesting point. We've bonded over our mental illnesses. <laughs> uh, a screenwriter who left L.A. <laughs> to come to New York to work in theater and a playwright who only wants to write plays. I mean, clearly, we're just mentally ill in the same way, so that's why we work together. Now, who are some of your influences as a writer? Um, John Guare was a really, really important influence to me. Back in the day, PBS used to have this show called American Playhouse, and so on TV, you could watch a play, which was a very democratic way because my family didn't go to the theater that much. And uh, The House of Blue Leaves, John Guare's play, was on uh, that show. And it was so, so funny, but also so unbelievably heartbreaking and tragic 
to the extent that when I, I was very young when I saw it, and I, I didn't understand that something could be both at the same time. And so at first I tried to reject it. I actually like told myself, I hate this because I was having such a good time, and then I ended up like crying and being really upset. And then I couldn't think about it. I couldn't stop thinking about it for weeks, and then I realized if I'm thinking about it for weeks on end, I must have loved it. And that formulated my love of theater, and it formulated my aesthetic. So, props to John Guare. <laughs> and uh, Jacob, you do you have any like influences directorially? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was very lucky when I was in college. I got to do an internship uh, with Jerry Zachs when he was directing a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And the deal was the best deal I've ever made in my life. I slept all around the city for free, like carrying stuff and making copies and stuff like that. And in exchange, I got to watch Jerry Zachs direct. And I learned more about directing from sitting in a room with Jerry Zachs and just watching him work with actors. And there's this amazing thing that Jerry does that I, I try to... Like, I tried to internalize. Like, the sky could be falling. Lights could be falling out of the air. The actors don't know their lines. Everything's a mess. And Jerry would always, he'd start, he'd clap his hands. He'd be like, okay, we're exactly where we're supposed to be right now. And then he would dismantle everything and put it back together again. And that, that idea that wherever you are, that's exactly where you need to be, and the idea that Creating a show is a process, and it's not just a result. Um, for me, that was really a profound, profound uh, lesson from a guy who's just a master of his craft and who, I guess, kind of does in many ways what I aspire to do, which is make plays that are genuinely, genuinely funny but can also hit you in the gut. And I think Jerry Zachs does that really, really well. Um, so, yeah, he's one of my biggies. All right, so uh, what to do when all your friends... What, what do you do when you hate all your friends? Uh, opens July 19th, and when does it run until? It runs through August 9th. All right, and uh, where, where is this located? It's at the Lion Theater at Theater Row, which is 410 West 42nd Street between 9th and 10th. Best air conditioning in any theater in New York. Bring a shirt. Like, Maybe even a jacket. Yeah, the key to New yeah. York's living is layers. So if you have a shirt, you're going to be very, very comfortable. <laughs> in general, I really, I always say it on things. I pretty, I really like all the kind of new multiplex theaters. Oh yeah. I don't know. It seems so horribly corporate, but I think for comfort, for these small theaters, smaller shows to compete on a comfort level with, you know, the Broadway shows. I think some of these theaters are more comfortable than Broadway houses. They're extremely comfortable, and, you know, the ticket price is not that expensive, so people are, have been coming to our show because it's there, which is not um, a common phenomenon in New York, so we're happy about that, sure. I know my girlfriend likes going to movies just for the air conditioning. So <laughs> maybe theater. Will she be. should totally come to this. <laughs> this is definitely the show for her. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> but bring a quilt. <laughs> All right. So Larry Konofsky and uh, Jacob Kruger, thanks so much for coming down. Also, Thank is you, there man. a website that people can go to? Yes, you can go to www.hateallyourfriends.com. All right. Best of luck with your run. Thanks Thank so much. You. Okay, thank you. Thank you.
The Producer's Perspective. Hey everybody, it's Ken Davenport with theproducersperspective.com. I want to warn you before we go any further that the following podcast may include some baseball analogies. Okay, we got that out of the way now. You know, in baseball, when someone has a very high batting average, you analyze their swing, you take a look at their mechanics, and you figure out what is getting them hit after hit after hit. And Broadway is no different. So this week, we're going to take a look at some folks with a pretty high batting average that are producing hit after hit after hit. And we're going to analyze what they're doing, and we're going to try to figure out the mechanics of what they're doing and why it's working. So those two producers we're going to look at are Kevin McCollum and Jeffrey Seller. So from 1996 to the end of this current season, they produced four new musicals. Those new musicals were Rent, Avenue Q, High Fidelity, and In the Heights in chronological order. Now, let's look at those four shows. Of those four new musicals, three of them are hits. Of those new musicals, three of them have won Tony Awards. They're batting 750. So that's a pretty high average. So let's look and see what these three musicals have in common. Number one, the first thing that struck me, Rent, Q, and In the Heights are all about small geographic subcultures in New York City. It's kind of funny, right? Lower East Side, a mythical last stop in an outer borough, and Washington Heights. Well, what does this mean? I'm not sure this is the most important characteristic for us to focus on, but it is important. All of these communities have very distinct voices that we hadn't heard from before on Broadway. These shows taught us about the issues facing the youth of these three very distinct New York City communities. Wait, there's another one, actually. All three of them have to do with young people starting their lives. Okay, number two. Now, this is the most important element of these three shows. Who wrote them? You probably never heard of the writers of these musicals before their shows opened. That's because each one made their Broadway debut with these musicals. Three hits, three Broadway debuts of a book writer, a composer, and a lyricist. These producers have made a choice to use new writers, new voices. They're investing both time and dollars in people that have stories that they feel must be told. The writer's passion for these projects goes right on the page, and that bleeds right onto the stage. You can feel it when you're in the theater. Number three, who's the director? You know what I'm going to say, don't you? But you can't believe it either, yet it's true. Three hits, three brand spanking new Broadway directors all making their Broadway debuts, just like the writers. $10 million musicals on the shoulders of these Broadway babies. This is an unbelievable trend. It flies in the face of conventional wisdom for producing a show. Get established writers, get established directors. That's going to attract investors. Hal Prince once told me that if I wanted a musical to happen, all that I needed to do was hire a name director and the money would come and the show would happen. Hal was right. But Kevin and Jeffrey are demonstrating that if you want to hit new musical, a name may be the last thing you might want. Number four, no stars. There isn't a star in any of those shows. Another thing these three shows have in common? No spectacle. No chandeliers, no helicopters, no flying monkeys, dragon, green girls, nothing. The story is the spectacle. And lastly, when you don't have stars, when you don't have spectacles, you're not producing $15 million musicals. All of these shows are economical. These guys don't try and produce the biggest musicals ever, just the best that have budgets that can be recouped in a realistic time frame. Now you'll notice I focused on three out of four musicals up until the end of this current season when In the Heights won Best Musical. Well, guess what? Kevin and Jeffrey just opened up a brand new musical. And guess what? 
all of the things that I've talked about in this podcast apply, except for one, the geographic sublocation. New writers, new director, no stars, no spectacle, economic budget. Now, it's too early in the life of title a show to know what kind of hit it's going to be, but that's besides the point. The point is the trend is the same. It's amazing, their dedication to this formula. Let's go further. Kevin, in that period, did a show without Jeffrey called Drowsy Chaperone. Guess what? I don't have to go through it again. You obviously get the point. These guys have a high average. So that means they've got great fundamentals and great mechanics that we can all learn from so that when we step up to the plate, we can knock one out of the park. I told you there was going to be baseball analogies. I'm Ken Davenport for The Producer's Perspective. For more of Ken Davenport's insights into the business of New York theater, visit www.producersperspective.com. Broadway Abridged Live. When you just don't have three and a half hours for a show. Broadway Bullet and Broadway Abridged are proud to bring you this presentation of Spring Awakening Abridged. On stage is an empty, low-cost, uh, minimalist set. The set is surrounded by audience members who bought low-cost tickets. Uh, sorry, minimalist tickets. Enter some whiny girl. Oh, mother, where do babies, like, come from? Enter actress who plays every adult woman. Well, my teenage daughter, the stork brings it. It's a good thing that this play takes place in the past. Otherwise, the fact that I, like, totally believe you would seem utterly absurd. Quiet, daughter, and go back to stopping the plot. Scene. Classroom. We come across two teens, Crazy Hair Guy and Pretty Boy. Pretty Boy, where do babies come from? Why do you ask, Crazy Hair Guy? Overheard it in the last scene. Also, horny teen angst. Well, you see, when a man and a... I've been at this very strict Catholic school for a long time. Can you just give it to me in a 30-page paper? Weirdo. In the background, the rest of the male class finally establishes that they're in a classroom. Latin, 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 Latin. Enter the actor who plays every adult male. Yes, you must learn Latin the like from me, your very strict professor, and curses to your horny teen angst. Um, pretty boy, what's that sticking out of there? Huh? Are you happy to see me or something? Oh, oh that? Nah, it's just a microphone. Suddenly, the simple lighting changes into rock star lighting. Pretty Boy pulls the microphone out of his clothing and begins to sing Duncan Sheep music into it while, behind him, an 1890s Germany continues to be 1890s and German. And so Latin, 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 Latin. By the way, crazy hair guy, you're a crappy student and you're probably going to fail. Angst! Also horniness! Because we're teens and we're horny! Lights go down even further. Now all students take out their phallic microphones and sing into them. Living is a bitch! They do a whole bunch of alternative music video types of moves. This is very hip and trendy and will further get reviewers to use the word rent a lot in their write-ups. Audience has an inner monologue. I see. The 1890s strictness of adults. Represented by German play scenes. Juxtaposes with the inner angst of the children. Represented by music by the I'm barely breathing guy. Okay. I'm willing to follow along so long as I have the microphones clarify for me when the juxtapositioning is happening. Do you see where this is going? Good for you. Scene. Somewhere minimalist that female teens hang out. 
We need to push the raunchiness to match our crappy, crappy logo and advertising oh, campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's great. So far, we've talked about where babies come from, <laughs> also a reference to homosexuality, oh, and me yeah. having fantasies about your piano teacher's breasts. Like and we yeah. used the word bitch oh. as the main course of a song. Bitch, 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 fuck! <laughs> we need to up the ante on pushing the envelope. Girls, any ideas? I get beaten. My father beats me. Let's, like, I'll talk about the details of young girls being beaten. They take out microphones so they can do it with more teen angst. Now, like, let's totally get a boy to masturbate on stage and jump. Why are we talking like this? Because Loretta Steven Sater was alive in the 80s, which means he totally knows how teens today talk in junk. Scene. Rock concert slash toilet slash wherever. Enter Gay Blood. Have you prayed tonight, Desdemona? He masturbates on stage during an entire song while looking at what seems to be a picture of a girl. Gay audience members react. Oh, this makes lots of sense. Wait a minute, wasn't they already established as gay? We're so explicit, aren't we, whiny girl? Yes, we are, pretty boy. Now, I've never been beaten before. Please, beat me. Well, okay. He does. It is so over the top, one can't help to find it comical. Yeah, deep within my inner psyche, I am human and I have an inherent desire to beat a woman. Yay! That pretty much covers all the horrific things you can shove into this musical, right? Right? Scene, home of crazy hair guy. Don't commit suicide or anything, but you're failing school. But Pretty Boy's dad... I'm not Pretty Boy's dad in this scene, I'm your dad. How am I supposed to tell the difference? Context. Very minor changes in costuming. Guessing. Acting? No. So yeah, don't fail school. Also, I keep my gun over here. Scene. The park. A great place for 14-year-olds to have sex. Pretty Boy and Whiny Girl get just a little tiny bit naked and have sex. This is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. Sex. Between underage teenagers. So More soft, wonderful, sensual beauty. Lights go down and full cast comes on, singing more Duncan Sheikisms into no, the microphone. No, lose the microphones. But director Michael Mayer... We're now going to have you sing only every other song with microphones. Why keep a convention going when you can destroy it entirely? Speaking of destroying... Scene, home of whiny girl. You're pregnant. You fucked. I am? Why didn't anyone tell me I can get pregnant from fucking? Why, Mom? Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Why, Dad? I'm not your dad. I'm the doctor now. Oh. Scene. More minimalism. Here I am with this gun. I'm going to kill myself. Also, I'm horny. Enter a female character with an overly breathy voice, whom we have never seen before. Hey, crazy hair guy. I'm a person you supposedly know, but I've only entered the plot at this very second. And I will insist on talking to you only via microphones for no god-given reason. I also have a lot of sex, which is apparently what you desire. Before you kill yourself, wanna have sex? No, I have homework to do. But you're really just going to kill No you. sex for us. Well, that's a direct slap in the face. Scene. Jail classroom. Or, well, something. 
She's pregnant and I'm stuck in jail school or whatever I'm in. This sucks. Other jail classmates gang up on him suddenly. Fuck yeah. Yeah, let's all fucking rape him or something. They do. Do they? Scene. A different part of the park. This part where gay teenagers have sex. I want to lick off the cream. Will you help me lick off the cream? Yes, yes, lick the cream. Thanks, Spring Awakening. You've just set back gay rights by 20 years. Scene. The land of tell, don't show. Abortion kills. So will whiny girls survive it? Abortion kills. Who are you in this scene? Abortion kills. Scene. I think graveyard. Oh, whiny girl and crazy hair guy. You're dead and I'm so sad. Suddenly singing is heard. Whiny hair girl and crazy hair guy step out of their graves and return as ghosts. Take my hand and lead me to salvation. Take my love, for love is everlasting. And remember the truth that once was spoken. To love another person is to see the face of God. And um, shit, bitch, Pretty Boy runs away and decides that his friends will live inside him. Congratulations, Spring Awakening! You're the most original musical ever! Angsty Blackout. Broadway abridged version of Spring Awakening abridged wasn't dropped off by the stork. It was conceived by these fine actors. My name is Jake Friedman, and I was a horny, angst-filled teen once, too. My name is Ron Verud, and I'm having a spring awakening right now. My name is Rachel Pincus, and thank God my parents don't know what an internet is. My name is Gil Verud, and I'm a rip-off artist. For more free, abridged scripts online, visit broadwayabridged.com. On the boards. All right. As everybody knows, festival season is well underway. And at the Fringe, we got a new musical that is written by, I guess, a longtime Broadway Bullet listener, David L. Williams. The Johnny is a musical about uh, what happens to the bully from all those 80s movies that we know and love. Or uh, if you're older than, like, 30, you definitely That's right. <laughs> <laughs> know and love. But uh, David L. Williams is here with us to talk about the show. How you doing? Hi, Michael. So first off. What what made you decide to delve into the mind of the bully? Well, this is an idea that's been kicking around uh, in my head from since about 2001 or so. A friend of mine, an actor named Bill Ellsman, who was in a show that I had uh, written and directed, we were out after a show drinking because we're in the theater, and that's what you do. And uh, we no. were talking about, oh, no, not you. <laughs> I mean, other than you. Uh, we were talking about The Karate Kid and Back to School and Teen Wolf, just one of the guys, those kind of movies where there was always sort of a an underdog and a bully. And you got the sense that the bully had been winning things since he was two. Uh, and he was, you know, had a record of 500 and zero. Boom, 10 minutes before the movie ends, he loses. And that's it. He's done. And that didn't make any sense to us on a logical level that... You know, somebody could be that good at everything and then lose one match and this other person who's, you know, one in 500 is now the top dog of the whole, you know, school or whatever. And we just thought that guy needs a story himself. We kind of want to know what happens to him after he, after he leaves that tournament. So we sort of came up with an idea that was uh, the Karate Kid meets Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, if I'm going to do sort of the Hollywood pitch version of it. But uh, – we thought of it as a screenplay, as a play, and then and then a few years ago, I kind of came up with the idea that it was such an earnest 
uh, story that, you know, it had such big emotions to it that we wanted to sort of put it as a musical. So I ended up writing it as a musical uh, myself with David Vaughn doing – a friend of mine doing the music for it. Okay, so fess up. You do musical theater. Sure. Did you face many a bully back? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do mostly plays, and those are much cooler to the bullies. <laughs> you know, what? I didn't. Um, I guess I was kind of lucky in my schools of choice that I never really had to bother with that. Um, so yeah, no, I. You know, what? I've written like two shows that have bullies in them, and maybe I was the bully, and I'm just sort of confessing my sins over and over again because I cannot remember somebody bullying me. Uh, I think it was more sort of the effect that all those movies had on me as a kid. Okay, and what are those? Drum roll. What are the what are the quintessential movies that your cast members must watch? Uh, well, okay, so Karate Kid is the big one. Obviously, that's where the sort of Johnny starts, uh, and then it's part of sort of the William Zabka trilogy, as we call it, of uh, just one of the guys and Back to School, because the same guy plays the the blonde uh, jerk bully and. Does it very well, actually. Um, a little bit of Teen Wolf. You get Breakfast Club has uh, Emilio Estevez takes that part. And you get to see a little bit behind the mask uh, from that. Um, those are the major ones, I would say. Right now, that's what we're going for. Um, and you know, we use sort of the eighty style of music for some of the the numbers in the show as well to kind of keep that theme up. But we don't want to do sort of a we don't want a hey, this is funny because it people used to have Rubik's cubes. We don't really make any of those jokes because. They're not that funny, honestly, and so we don't want to make them anymore. We're kind of tired of them ourselves. Now, you before we started the interview, you mentioned that a lot of your cast members weren't even born when some of these movies came around. Yeah. So, what has that process been? Have any of the cast members gone, "Wow, these were stupid movies"? It's a lot of dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you seen the movies that are out now? Come on, no. Uh, it's a lot of dead silence when I'll make a reference to something, and I feel like, "Hey, I'm 32. Why am I the oldest person in this conversation?" But that's what happens. So, no, uh, a lot of people have to do some research, see these movies. But a lot of these movies, the John Hughes movies and things like that, have been sort of passed down by older brothers and sisters, I think, at this point. And become – and I mean, how many times is VH1 going to have, you know, I love 1985 in seven different versions? <laughs> so they can get all that information. Volume, two, volume, volume seven, you know, all that stuff. So I think they, they can get a lot of it from that. Uh, and, they, and, they, and they watch some of these movies themselves. And, and honestly, like, the bully archetype really hasn't changed. You know, there's bullies in Rebel Without a Cause. There's bullies in, oh, goodness, uh, Hannah Montana? I have no idea. Well, yeah, <laughs> as you like this, it is very much an archetype of all ages. So right. that's the question. So why did you want to make it the 80s? Kind of. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that because that seemed to me to be the golden age of blonde bullies, you know, terrorizing small underdogs. I mean, it seems like yes, every – they it. They have reunions. Yeah, I, I would think that. <laughs> yeah, they have a good. big, huge reunion where they all make fun of each other and give each other wedgies and things <laughs> like that. No, I mean that, and connive oh, for that, the back to get to those glory days back. Yeah, that's. I mean, and I think that was <laughs> that's what always stuck out with me. And obviously, I'm you know that was my childhood, so that's what I sort of have as my image of it. And I think that, I mean, the Karate Kid is a movie of the '80s, but the Karate Kid's a very, I think, at this point, fairly iconic movie. It's been parodied in a lot of things. We didn't want to do a parody of that, but we wanted to sort of take that known mythology of it, that that kind of idea of a movie, which was which I thought really did have its. Have its you know glory days in the eighties, uh, as I quoted an eighties song while I do it. <laughs> now you have uh, one of your actors here with you uh, to perform one of the songs in the show. Do you want to set this up at all? Sure. This is uh, Derek, who is playing the part of Johnny, the lead part. Uh, this is this big song at the beginning of Act Two. Uh, he has 
lost uh, a second time. Spoiler alert, I guess. But no, it's it's. Oh uh, no! Oh no! No! Now no one will come to the show because people lose during it. But uh, this is after his second tournament um, loss, and he sort of goes through the litany of blaming everyone he can think of for his loss, except for himself. He blames Mr. M, the coach. He blames his friend Bobby. He even blames the guy who beat him himself. Um, until he finally sort of comes to an acceptance and figures out that maybe he's screwing up. Maybe he's not perfect after all. All right. And uh, accompanying you is, or accompanying Derek Krantz is? Uh, Jad Bernardo. All right. Let's take a listen. Tell me what am I supposed to do from now on? All my hopes and dreams are long gone. Every wish I once had Walked away like Kyle Weaver See, I can beat Kyle Weaver But I didn't beat Kyle Weaver It's not my fault It can't be my fault school find a way to forgive me I was their favorite son for so long must I relive the day that Kyle first beat me had I tried then you'd see I'd be tasting victory and without Mr. M that's the way it would end. It's not my fault. Failed revenge has to be Mr. M's fault. I can't believe they've shut me. my fault it was all my fault 
So how long has the Johnny been in the works here? Uh, as a musical, it's probably been in the works for about two and a half to three years. It's gone through a lot of changes, um, mostly because it's, you know, it's hard to write a musical. And I, a lot of my experience is writing plays, and it's, it's a really different animal, and I've kind of learned that. Um, this is the third musical I've written the book for, and this is the first time I'm writing lyrics. And so all of it's sort of been... Trial by fire. I think I've lucked into structure really well the first time, first two times, and this one I kind of had to figure it out on my own. So, you know, it's been a process of readings, like like most musicals, a process of readings and you know, rewrites and readings and rewrites until we're finally sort of festival ready. Now, speaking of that, one thing I'm kind of curious about, and I don't think I've ever asked anybody this, with all the festivals that are now going on, you know, the MITF, uh, Fringe, Nymph coming up. What made you what made you choose to use this festival or, or or why do you think that the fringe is a better thing for this festival than some of the other things or did you just apply to them all and go with who went first or I'm just going to carry no, some Sure no no we we didn't apply to them all um because that's you know I I've done the fringe this is my fourth time doing the fringe so I kind of have a special uh, relationship and history with the fringe that I really enjoy the process of it I think that the people who do the fringe are people who care about uh, the art that they're making and not a lot of the artifice that, and the politics that goes around it because you have such a short amount of time because you have, you know, as people have said before, 15 minutes to load in, 15 minutes to load out and, you know, a few hours for tech and that's it. You kind of have to come up with the best product you can in sort of the rehearsal studios of New York City and, and figure out what, what's going to work best on stage, what your show is all about and how you can really portray that. Um, and I find that the fringe audiences are really fantastic about sort of looking past that and going not going when does the chandelier fall, but really saying, you know, this is this has great dialogue, this is great acting and really inventive and creative ideas. And so something like this, I think this show and the ages that the fringe attracts um, primarily really I felt like it was a very good fit. So I was really happy that we got accepted into the fringe because I think it's um, – it's the right festival for this show to find its audience. Um, another question that maybe other people who are looking at, you know, trying to get into the into the various festivals, you, you, considering that you said this is your fourth show that you've done with the uh, Fringe and the Festivals, these are still quite costly to put up. Yes. And I'm kind of curious if you have any advice on how you've managed to achieve funding, because also I can pretty much just, they don't really make their money back at the festival. No. So no. uh, I'm kind of curious, for, for our listeners out there, how you've managed to kind of wade the waters and get four shows mounted and, and, and not be bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going to talk to you about that. <laughs> no, uh, you know, the easy answer is that I have a job job during the day. I, have, uh, I, I work in an office, um, and I have a real – I hate to say a real job. Everyone has real jobs. I have an office job, and it, and it pays me well enough that I can sort of use – that money to fund this. So I kind of see, like, theater as my second job that I have to pay for. Uh, so and the high school counselors saying, you know, get a, get a real job. Get a real fall job. Back, it's, fall not back a, on. it's not a bad piece of advice. <laughs> so I'm sure my parents will be nodding if they listen to this. Uh, but I think also you can, if you get enough people who are interested on board, you can find a lot of people who are willing to work for little to nothing on these shows because it's a short time commitment. You know, usually it's, it's four weeks of rehearsal and a couple of weeks of the show. And if you get people excited about your show, I think that, which we did, I think, with our readings, we got a lot of people, our choreographer, for example, uh, Grady, had seen the show in a reading and was like, I, I have all these ideas of what we can do for the, for the choreographer for the show. I'd love to work on it. And a lot of people were like that. I think that you can 
sort of float yourself along for a few weeks while you're paying for rehearsal space and, and things like that and use the ticket money to sort of supplement it. You're going to make a – you're going to suffer a loss and that's fine. You should be doing this to – but but if you decided to mount a show yourself at, at a space, well, you're going to be paying for that rental space, which is going to be, you know, much more expensive than anything else. And, you know, I've done that as well and, and that always costs more than a festival. So you kind of have to bite the bullet. But if you get enough people along with you – to throw in a few bucks here and there, you may be able to come up with a you I'm not gonna say may, you will be able to come up with I think a very good show and a really good product and an appreciative and an appreciative audience, which is, you know, very worthwhile as well. All right. So the Johnny uh now it's gonna be a festival schedule, so is there a website people can go to to find the specific times? It's playing from August tenth through August twenty third, correct? That's right. And and I was told to plug the website over and over again. Yeah. So I will <laughs> TheJohnnyMusical.com is our website. On that, we have links to, you know, obviously ticket buying and our MySpace videos with the creators. So if you want to hear me talk more and, and heaven knows why you would want that. But you can also hear our uh, composers speak and see, you know, pictures of the show and things like that. And we've got all the crazy Facebook and MySpace, you know, fan stuff. But TheJohnnyMusical.com is going to be your ticket to everything about the Johnny, every bit and piece you need to know about the guy who tormented countless underdogs in 80s movies. All right. Well, David L. Williams, thanks so much for coming and talking about The Johnny, thejohnnymusical.com, August 8th through the 13th, or 20, August 8th, 10th. <laughs> I'm looking. It's August 10th Come as many times as you want. <laughs> and uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Michael. Top of the trades. On July 23rd, Bailey Hanks will be making her Broadway debut in the role of Elle Woods in the hit musical Legally Blonde. On Monday, June 2nd, 2008, MTV premiered the reality show Legally Blonde the Musical, The Search for Elle Woods, to find a talented singer-actress-dancer to take over for Broadway star and Tony nominee Laura Bell Bundy. Not only was she cast in her dream role, she also recorded the hit single So Much Better, produced by Ghostlight, now available on iTunes.com and Amazon.com. Dangerous Ground Productions proudly presents The Last Tango in Paris, a world premiere all-new multimedia adaptation of the iconic 1973 Bernardo Bertolucci film adapted, conceived, and directed by Doris Mirescu. The show begins performances on Friday, August 22nd at 8 p.m. at the Paradise Factory and will play through Saturday, September 6th. Presented as a multimedia theater piece, the cast includes Kira Davies, Patrick Flynn, Angela Pasquini, and Benjamin Sinclair. Many of the cast also appeared in the recent production of Beware of A Holy Whore at the Visual Arts Theater. Angels, the musical, which was recently announced for the current 2008-2009 Broadway season, has canceled its engagement at the Shreveport, L.A. Due to technical requirements, the production will not be able to open its planned L.A. engagement on August 29th at the Strand Theater. Plans for Broadway are unaffected by this production delay, according to producers. Quote, we are very disappointed not to be able to debut Angels in Shreveport as planned, said producer Marcus Chong. He continued, quote, Angels is a very complex production with specific needs and, of course, can only be performed when absolutely ready, end quote. Angels tells the story of the ancient war between the angels and Lucifer's fallen minions. Curtain call. Well, the show is a little shorter than I expected. Uh, a major interview that I was expecting to happen uh, yesterday fell through. Um, it'll have it happening at some point, though, soon. But uh, a lot of great stuff. Also, if uh, anybody wants to wish Marty Cooper uh, some well wishes, uh, 
he plans on hopefully he'll be back next episode. I, I tell you, he's been going through some rough times this past year. But you can uh, give him your emails of support to broadwaymarty at aol.com and hopefully we'll have him back for on the positive side very shortly. In the meantime, I will see you again. Uh, we're here the second and fourth Thursday of every month. So see you again in August. This is your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that, to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.